There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. This episode is part two of They Let the City Burn, the story of an activist organization called MOVE, led by a man named John Africa, who wanted to live by what he considered to be natural law. In part one, we talked about Vincent Leopard, a man growing up in Philadelphia, looking for a way to make sense of what he thought was wrong in the world. We talked about his transition to become John Africa and the movement he started in West Philadelphia, which ended in a standoff between the members of MOVE and the Philadelphia police, one officer dead and 11 members of MOVE convicted of his murder. Part one gave you the tumultuous history between MOVE and the city of Philadelphia. It was a glimpse into six years of discord, demonstrations, and ultimately destruction of the home John Africa shared with men, women, and children who came to live by his guidelines. It was a relationship that was fractured from day one in a city with a mayor who saw MOVE as nothing more than criminals, and an organization of people who felt they had no choice but to defend themselves and their way of life. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and do so. Will you understand part two without part one? Yes, of course you will. But it's important to me that you listen to part one and listen with an open mind. I can't make you do either. I can merely ask. So consider this a request. The plan to bomb the move house was reckless, ill-conceived, and hastily approved. Dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was unconscionable and should have been rejected out of hand. All they said was evacuate and we'll be back in later. Now who's going to give me restitution? Now I know somebody's going to give me something or they'll have move to on their hands. For the past four years, they've lived in the Powhatan Village area of West Philadelphia, often running into conflicts. There ain't no white and black in this. It's human. It's about human beings. If one baby dies, it's going to be a hell of a summer in Philadelphia. In everything from work habits to child raising, MOVE is revolutionary. The grand jury concluded that the dropping of the bomb was a legitimate exercise of police power, and that it did not in itself cause the deaths and the property damage. Could you describe the, what you mean by the word the system, please? The system, the establishment, you. At 6.10 a.m., Mayor Rizzo finally, after 15 months of confrontation, used the force he threatened all along. The police will be in there to drag them out by the backs of their necks. They're going to be taken by force if they resist. When we ended Part 1, it was 1978. August, summer in the city, and the Philadelphia police had raised the move house at 307-309 North 33rd Street to the ground. In 1979, 11 move members were incarcerated for the murder of Officer James Stamp, who lost his life the day Philadelphia police attempted to remove the members of move from their residence. The following year, three officers, Charles Geist, Joseph Zagame, and Terrence Mulvihill, were charged with aggravated assault in the beating of Delbert Africa on August 8, 1978. The video of Delbert's beating is horrible to watch. Delbert Africa was in the basement of the move house on August 8, and he was one of the last people to leave the premises. He crawled out of a basement window with his arms out at his side. His palms were open. He was unarmed. And these officers beat him to the ground, 
repeatedly kicking him in the head and the chest. They broke his jaw. Before the case could be heard by a jury, Judge Stanley Kubaki acquitted these officers. He was quoted as saying nothing would staunch the flow of blood in the city, and by that he meant charges against the police. In 1980, John Africa, the leader of MOVE, was arrested in Rochester, New York, and brought back to Philadelphia along with Alberta Africa, Alfonso Africa, Jerry Africa, and Conrad Africa. John and Alfonso were tried for weapons and conspiracy charges, and the federal prosecutor had three years' worth of evidence to bring against them. Some of that evidence was from a man named Donald Glassy. Donald was a city college professor who helped John Africa write the guidelines of MOVE in the early 70s. He was the man who bought the house on North 33rd Street for John and the other members of MOVE. Don had been a member himself until he became a federal witness and, unbeknownst to John Africa, had been taping their conversations. John Africa spoke to the jury in his own defense for a closing argument. He talked about his truth and his philosophy. He said he wasn't guilty. He didn't come to bring trouble, but to bring truth. He spoke about fighting, but not in a militant sense. Fighting for clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, not only for him and his followers, but for everyone. He talked about being a revolutionary in the sense that it means to turn, to generate, and to activate. He talked about the way the world revolutionized before now and how, as people, we have to revolutionize to keep things moving, not to kill or hurt or bomb, but to change. After five days of deliberations, the jury found both John and Alfonso Africa not guilty. Another member, Frank Africa, wasn't quite so lucky. He was convicted on charges of inciting a prison riot and conspiracy. He was paroled in 1983. Frank was the connection to the infamous house in Cobbs Creek, Philadelphia, the residence at 6221 Osage Avenue. It was his mother's home, and after he was paroled, it's where he wanted to live. And other members of MOVE, including John, Ramona, Conrad, and Jerry, followed him there. They lived there with Frank and with his mother. And the trouble followed them there soon after. The change of address wasn't the only difference for MOVE in the 80s. The city had a new mayor, Wilson Good. Mayor Good was an African-American, educated at the Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia, with a much more temperate approach to city government than Frank Rizzo had demonstrated. And Wilson Good beat out Rizzo for the Democratic nomination, and then he took the entire election in 1983. Mayor Good was certainly aware of everything that preceded his term with MOVE, and he took a different, albeit still unsuccessful, approach. He was hands-off. Basically, he tried to avoid any confrontation whatsoever with the members of MOVE. It was a bit of a stick-your-head-in-the-sand approach that his administration adopted for the first year he was in office. Some people thought Mayor Good believed if he avoided the problem and didn't respond, the problem would go away. And it didn't. Like their neighbors on North 33rd Street, the residents of Osage Avenue grew to take serious issue with MOVE. Initially, the relationship in the neighborhood was very positive. But soon, there were the same problems of trash and rats, negative impacts to property value. But this time, MOVE was more aggressive in their approach with their neighbors. They were also more adamant with the city that the members of their organization who were incarcerated for the murder of Officer James Ramp be released. MOVE felt they were targets of police persecution because they lived differently than others. 
Even with the good administration taking a non-confrontational approach for the first year, Move still believed there was no other option than a confrontation with the system, and the system was the city. Within the first few months of taking office, Mayor Wilson Good was more than aware of the brewing powder keg on Osage Avenue. Let me give you a little architectural lesson on Philly row homes. We're not the only city with row homes. New York, D.C., Chicago, even suburban neighborhoods have row homes. They're streets with eight, maybe ten, sometimes as many as twelve tall, narrow houses attached to one another with small front yards, on-street parking, and often an alleyway behind the house where residents have a small rear yard or maybe a driveway or even a garage. Move put up fencing behind the house on Osage Avenue, which blocked other residents from accessing their driveways and their garages. There was the issue again of so many dogs and cats on the property running the streets. There were roaches in the house at 6221. They spread like wildfire to the adjacent properties. And the raw meat left outside for the animals attracted more roaches and rats. And there were alleged attacks, physical attacks, by MOVE members on their neighbors. Like the house in Palatin, MOVE again transformed the property. They ripped out the glass in the windows and put in wooden slats. They built bunkers on the roof. They installed a bullhorn on the front of the house so at any time the residents could be heard all over the neighborhood. And most of what they were shouting were demands for the release of their imprisoned members. Vents on Osage Avenue started to mushroom. MOVE's efforts to get their members out became more shrill. They started with verbal harangues of the neighbors, amplified harangues by the PA system that was on the roof. On December 25th, 1984, Move was on their loudspeaker haranguing neighbors by name for 27 hours straight. Of relevance, um, December 25th is Christmas. This was not the way to get what they wanted or what they needed. They were unintentionally trashing their own neighborhood. They were terrorizing their neighbors, and if not directly, then indirectly because of the screaming and cursing all night through the bullhorn. And they were terrorizing each other. In December 1983, neighbors reported seeing Louise Africa, John's sister, running down the street trying to escape from her son Frank, who was chasing after her with an axe. He said he was going to cycle her, which is the phrase they used when people or animals died. Laverne Africa was beaten repeatedly. Both she and Louise left the house on Osage Avenue by the end of the year in 1983. In February 1984, Louise and Laverne Africa went to the police. They told police about the abuse they suffered and that John Africa was planning something against the police if the city didn't release the incarcerated MOVE members. The city didn't need Louise and Laverne to tell them that. They heard that directly from Jerry Africa in a letter he sent Mayor Good on February 28, 1984. Jerry warned Mayor Good that all he needed to do was look back at the previous administration to see his future. He accused the mayor of refusing to speak out against injustice and police brutality and told Mayor Good that he should expect things to get worse. It was Powelton again, but this time it was worse than Powelton. The MOVE members on Osage Avenue approached their relationship with the city of Philadelphia with greater threats of violence, and they turned the house on Osage Avenue into a fortress. Unlike the situation in Palton, the neighbors on Osage Avenue did not want to work with MOVE. They wanted the police to intervene. And when their petitions, their cries, their demands fell on deaf ears, they went to the governor, 
In June 1984, Ed Rendell outlined the grounds on which the city of Philadelphia could take legal action against MOVE. It was, and here I quote Ed Rendell's letter to the mayor, both a legal analysis of alternatives and a strategic look at the feasibility of alternatives. Rendell was encouraging search warrants and arrest warrants, primarily for Frank Africa, who had violated parole. This was one alternative and something that seemed less extreme. The city could use Frank's parole violation, as well as the neighbors' claims of MOVE members on the roof with guns, to get a search warrant, and then arrest warrants. And Mayor Good did neither. The city did nothing. They let the situation on Osage Avenue escalate between MOVE and their neighbors, between MOVE and the city. Why? Why was this neighborhood left to fend for itself? Was it because it was a minority neighborhood in a minority section of the city? Was it because it was a much less well-to-do neighborhood in the city of Philadelphia? It wasn't just that the good administration was sticking its head in the sand about MOVE. It was as if they didn't care about the people on Osage Avenue. Maybe if we're talking about Rittenhouse Square or Chestnut Hill or, I don't know, someplace like Old City, I'd be telling you a very different story. I don't like believing that race was a factor in what happened on Osage Avenue, but I believe it nonetheless. I absolutely believe it was a contributing factor that no one cared about this neighborhood. Almost a year went by. A year of bullhorns and fighting and threats and the police standing at the periphery of MOVE. No one wanted another incident like the one in 1978. It was another year of Mayor Good waiting to see if the situation might resolve itself. And by spring of 1985, the residents of Osage Avenue had enough. They held a press conference on April 30th and implored Pennsylvania Governor Thornburg to do something. They asked, is there no one in this state who will stand up to move? They welcomed move into their diverse neighborhood four years before. They helped feed and clothe their children. They bought produce from the vegetables and fruit that move grew on their property. They tried to welcome them, and they were repaid with threats and violence. The neighbors believed there was no way the members of MOVE would live there peaceably, and they had to be removed. That's what it took, the city administration being called out by a group of civilians on public television. The Philadelphia police, the good administration, D.A. Rendell, they finally decided to do something about MOVE. Between May 1st and May 12th in 1985, at the request of Philadelphia Police Commissioner Sambor, a plan was devised to enter the residence at 6221 Osage Avenue. It was authored primarily by three men, Sergeant Albert Ravel, Lieutenant Frank Powell, who was the acting commander of the bomb squad, and stakeout officer Mike Tercy. Part one of the plan was for two teams to be stationed on the row houses on either side of 6221 Osage blow holes in the walls, and shoot tear gas into the MOVE residence. The plan didn't address the makeshift bunker MOVE erected on the roof, but it did give police access to the property. It was reviewed with other members of law enforcement, the FBI, and finally with the captain of the stakeout unit, a man named Captain Richard Kirchner. Everyone agreed with this approach. The team would encourage MOVE to surrender. If they didn't, and the police didn't really expect them to, the police would follow the plan to gain access through the adjoining homes. The plan also called for fire trucks to shoot high-pressure water hoses at the bunkers on the front and rear of the roof on the move house. On Saturday, May 11th, police commissioner Sambor, the fire commissioner, and members of all level of law enforcement meant to review the plan one last time. 
Now, during that meeting, the team scanned more recent intelligence photos from the property at 6221 Osage. There were photos of the bunkers on the roof. And in one particular photograph, there was a man hauling a can of gasoline up onto the roof. The can was even labeled gasoline. Keep that in mind. Photos of someone hauling gas cans onto the roof and other pictures of metal cans already on the roof next to the bunkers. The next day was Mother's Day, Sunday, May 12th. Imagine waking up, whether you celebrate Mother's Day or not, and as you're about to put on the morning coffee, there's a knock at your door, and it's the police. They tell you to vacate the premises. No, you don't need to bring anything with you, maybe just a change of clothes, because you'll be back soon, Monday night at the latest. And if you put up a fight, told the police you didn't want to leave your home, well, then you'd be arrested. So in almost every case, residents of Osage Avenue and Pine and Addison on either side of Osage grabbed a change of clothes and stayed with friends or relatives. At 6 a.m. Monday morning, May 13th, with a bullhorn in his hand, Commissioner Sambor called out to the residents of 6221 Osage Avenue. This is the police commissioner. We have a warrant for the arrest of Frank James Africa, Ramona Johnson Africa, Teresa Brooks Africa, and Conrad Hampton Africa for various violations of the criminal statutes of Pennsylvania. We do not wish to harm anyone. All occupants have 15 minutes to peaceably evacuate the premises and surrender. This is your only notice. 15 minutes start now. There were two teams assigned to break through the walls of neighboring homes. One team was assigned to 6217 Osage Avenue, two doors down. As the street filled with smoke to mask their movements, officers entered 6217, and once inside, they blew a hole into the house at 6219. They blew a hole into the sun porch. The first officer who attempted to enter 6219 through this hole was hit with gunfire from move members who were shooting through the foundations between properties. The team was forced back into 6217. The second team was in 6223 on the other side of the move residence. They tried to blow a hole through the cellar wall, but it didn't work. The cellar in the move house had been reinforced. Most of the common walls and access points had been reinforced, boarded up, or made impenetrable. So the police moved up to the second floor of 6223 Osage. They managed to blow a hole through an upstairs wall into 6221, and they were almost immediately met with gunfire. This was totally different than Powelton seven years before. Back in 1978, MOVE was unarmed, and any guns that they had on the premises didn't work. This time, MOVE had guns. This time, MOVE had guns that worked. They were using them. They weren't taking a position of nonviolence. They made good on their earlier threat that the police had better make sure their fucking insurance was paid up because they'd be laying in the street if they tried to come in. Although Sergeant Connor was hit at 6217, he was saved by his vest, and soon thereafter, he ordered officers on his team to rig a charge with C4. They threw the C4 into the porch at 6219, hoping to hit the move house. It did little damage to the porch attached to move because, like everything else in that house, it had been fortified like a bunker. So they rigged another charge, this time with a hell of a lot more C4, and it blew the front porch off the house at 6221 Osage. And at this point, the situation became madness. In 6223, the team tried again to blow holes in the basement into move. 
they use more C4 than before, so much so that they succeeded to such an extent they destroyed the foundation of the house adjacent to move. They couldn't tell if they'd broken through into the basement of 6221 because the upstairs floor had collapsed around them. Thirteen people were in the house at 6221 Osage Avenue. Half of them were adults armed with guns shooting at police. The other half were children. The explosions, the damage to neighboring houses, it did nothing to stop the confrontation. High-pressure hoses shooting water onto the roof did nothing to tear down the bunkers. Nothing the police did was working, and their plan was going to shit because it was an ill-conceived plan. To the police, the bunkers on the roof were the real problem. From there, the members of MOVE had the best vantage point of every area of the street and the alley behind the house. And they were protected. The police needed to tear down those bunkers. That's when Commissioner Sambor decided they could drop a charge onto the roof. Nothing strong enough to do significant damage, but something that would blow a hole in the roof and enable the police to toss tear gas into the move house and get the upper hand. Most of the officers there that heard this were uncertain about this decision, and they asked what would happen to the people in the house, especially any people that were on the second floor. They were assured by Lieutenant Frank Powell from the bomb squad that the worst thing that would happen was people wouldn't be able to hear for a week. The fire commissioner made a point to ask Powell if there was any chance this bomb could cause a fire. Powell's answer, practically none. He had no idea how wrong he was. Lieutenant Powell wanted to get word to the police on the ground about their intentions to drop a bomb via helicopter onto the roof at 6221 Osage. But Commissioner Sambor said not to tell them. At about 5.30 p.m. on Monday, May 13th, in 1985, Lieutenant Powell went up into a Pennsylvania State helicopter with two bags, two satchel bombs, an extra one just in case the first one missed or it didn't work. They didn't need the second one because Powell's aim was perfect. So the helicopter took off, made a circle, came back, and then the whole neighborhood shook. It sounded like a gas main had exploded, but some of the media members knew it was a bomb. And things just went down from there. The bomb landed precisely where Commissioner Sanborn needed it to, right next to the front bunker on the roof of 6221 Osage Avenue, which was also on top of the gasoline can. And when the bomb landed, the gas can exploded like a mushroom cloud of fire. As bad as that looked, the fire wasn't that big at first. It was contained to a small section of the roof. And there were Philadelphia firefighters on the ground below with water trucks. They were waiting for orders from the police to put out the fire. And the firefighters were told by the Philadelphia police to let the fire burn. Those four words are an exact quote of what was said to Philadelphia firefighters. Let the fire burn. Yes, the members of MOVE had guns. They'd already fired on police, but there were six children in the house at 6221 Osage, and the police said, let it burn. Those were the words the firefighters heard over their radios. 
Philadelphia Deputy Fire Commissioner was told to let it burn. Police Commissioner Sambor was so focused on getting control over the bunkers on the roof. He hoped letting the fire burn for a little while would do just that, prevent Move from using the bunkers, which gave them protection to act like snipers. And the water and the steam from the hoses, if they put out the fire, would block visibility, making it harder for police to get the upper hand. Sambor did not intend for the fire to grow the way it did. But those few words, in the moments after the bomb exploded in a mist of gasoline, and again more than a half hour later, when Philadelphia firefighters asked if they could put out the fire, but Sambor wanted to be sure the bunker had been destroyed, that delay sealed the fate for the members of MOVE in 6221 Osage Avenue and over 250 other residents and the city of Philadelphia. I've just been advised that we have new videotape of uh, the episode that apparently ended, we think ended, the uh, move situation tonight, the dropping of an incendiary device. Let's take a careful look at this, 5.27 p.m., state police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. As you can see, a very dramatic explosion that occurs 30 seconds and really rips into the move compound. There you see the bunker, which soon will go up in flames. And that was the explosion close up. Now, if there's anybody there, standing there, it's obvious they couldn't survive that explosion. That bunker Sambor was so worried about did collapse. It collapsed through the roof into the house and set the house on fire. And it spread. In less than an hour, it spread to the rest of Osage Avenue and it spread to Pine Street. What started out as a small fire on the roof of 6221 Osage Avenue destroyed three blocks and grew into a six-alarm fire. Over 230 firefighters from 28 different fire companies fought the blaze on Osage Avenue all night Monday into the pre-dawn hours on Tuesday morning. Everyone had guns but the firemen. Some firefighters reported the front porches of the row houses created a tunnel effect through which the fire grew and spread. Ladder Company 6, Ladder Company 24, Engine Company 41, and so many others, they were all good at their jobs. They all could have easily contained the fire had they been empowered to do so when it first broke out. But Police Commissioner Sambor wanted to make sure the bunker was destroyed. People think we just stood there because we didn't want to fight the fire. The only reason we stood there was because they told us there were people shooting. We were under orders not to get killed. For 45 minutes, he let the fire burn, police telling firefighters to wait. And that made the difference between the residents of Osage Avenue having homes to which they could return and instead being homeless. We gave them clothes, we gave them food, and then, like, they just started to be too much. They started having all these dogs, cats, rats, and they feed them raw meat. And the bullhorn, they were fucking this and that all night. Now, we didn't ask them to bomb the place, but we did ask them to come in. All they said was evacuate and we'll be back in later. Now, who's going to give me restitution? Now, I know somebody's going to give me something or they'll have move to on their hands. This just isn't necessary. I'm sure my house is just destroyed. We want to know who's going to pay for it. We've been there 20 years. All of my family's aspirations are tied up in that house. It's not fair for all the neighborhood to be destroyed. I blame everybody. We moved out of our houses voluntarily for them to be destroyed. 
Firefighters from multiple ladder companies saw two survivors flee the burning wreckage of Osage Avenue. Ramona Africa, who was wanted by police, and 13-year-old Birdie Africa. And that was it. Five children and six adults perished in the fire at 6221 Osage Avenue. Ramona claimed every time they tried to escape the fire, Philadelphia police fired at the house and pushed them back in. We tried to get our children, our animals, ourselves out of that blazing inferno. And as the cops saw us coming out, they opened fire. Police and firefighters claim gunshots continued from 6221 Osage during the fire. It is known that when the shooting started, Philadelphia police fired over 10,000 rounds at the move house within 90 minutes. The fire claimed almost every property on Osage and Pine, with the exception of a few properties at the end of each block. Firefighters carved two-foot trenches between the roofs where row houses hadn't yet started to burn, and doing this managed to save a few homes. But in total, 61 homes were destroyed. They dragged hoses into homes amid gunshots ringing out all around them on Osage Avenue on Pine Street, not knowing where the shots were coming from. With no protection, the firemen had no vests, but they pressed on. They had no jump on this fire, but they damn sure did everything they could once they were allowed to in an effort to contain it. Philadelphia firefighters managed to save the homes on Addison, on the other side of Osage Avenue, and along Cobbs Creek, which ran perpendicular to Osage. The fire jumped the block to Pine, but that's as far as it got, and that was bad enough. Pine Street's on fire. I just pulled two cops out of 6216 with their hands burned. Sir, if there's a dog in there, he's gone. I'm sorry. There's no Osage left. In two minutes, there'll be no pine. Within days, the city distributed almost $200,000 to the 61 families who lost their homes. Another $500,000 was distributed in the weeks after. 49 families were given temporary housing in homes around the city, and the U.S. Secretary of Housing gave Philadelphia $1 million to rebuild, although Mayor Good indicated it would take between 6 to $8 million. The state of Pennsylvania was not very generous when it came to problems in Philadelphia. President Reagan is deeply saddened by what has occurred, and he has asked me to do everything I can to remedy the situation. I believe the city should help itself. The business community should help, and the state should help. I say let them raise it in Philadelphia. It's not Pennsylvania's problem, it's the Philadelphia problem. Every time something happens in Philadelphia, they always have a satchel ready and they bring it to Harrisburg. As far as I'm concerned, they can return with an empty satchel. Ramona Africa was taken into custody after she escaped the fire. That left 13-year-old Birdie Africa to help identify the victims. The police and coroner's office were able to identify the adults, but the city had no idea who the children were, and it fell on Birdie to identify them. Ten-year-old Tamasa Africa, who was also called Boo. His mother Susan was in jail at the time of the fire for weapons charges. 
12-year-old Phil Africa, whose parents were in jail in connection with the death of Officer James Ramp in 1978. 13-year-old Melissa Africa, whose parents were also in jail in connection with the death of Officer James Ramp. And 15-year-old Catrice Africa, whose mother was in prison at the time of her death. That's a heavy burden for a 13-year-old little boy, recovering from burns and all alone because his mother died in the fire that he survived. And he had an even heavier job ahead of him. Bertie Africa was one of the key witnesses during the investigation by a special commission that was appointed by Mayor Wilson Good to investigate exactly what happened on May 13, 1985. By appointing this commission, the mayor wasn't just investigating Commissioner Sambor and the captains and the lieutenants who created the plan that ended with 11 dead and 61 homeless. He was investigating himself and the role that he played. Mayor Good personally appointed 11 members to the special commission less than two weeks after the devastation on Osage Avenue. The commission was comprised of attorneys, business leaders, professors, members of clergy from different denominations, and a former FBI agent. There were men and women, black and white, and interestingly enough, I actually know someone who was on the committee. I didn't know this person back in May 1985. I was 15 then, and I was terrified watching the city burn. I couldn't understand what could have been so bad that police in Philadelphia would drop a bomb on a house with women and children inside. I met this person later in life, and knowing them a bit, as I do now, as someone who is a champion for fairness, I believe while Mayor Good didn't have a fucking clue about what he was doing with MOVE, he knew what he was doing when he appointed these people, especially this person I know, to the Special Investigative Commission. The commission had an incredible level of power. They were authorized to conduct investigations, including the conduct of city employees like the mayor and Commissioner Sambor, D.A. Rendell, and so many others. They were considered an impartial and independent investigative team who could hold hearings. They had access to any records of any officer, any board, any agency they deemed necessary for their investigation. They could compel witnesses for interviews. They could even issue subpoenas. They were given a considerable level of authority and autonomy. The commission held televised public hearings beginning in October 1985. Many of the interviews, interrogations of MOVE members, the DA, police officers, members of the Civil Affairs Department, it was all available for the city of Philadelphia to watch. On May 13th, 1985, years of conflict between the city of Philadelphia and a small urban group known as MOVE ended in a violent day-long encounter between the group's members and the Philadelphia police. It was one of the most devastating days in the modern history of this city. Before we call the first witness, <clears throat> I want to tell you about this special commission. We are men and women, black and white, guided by our own attitudes and beliefs. What we hope to accomplish is to begin healing the wounds caused by the failure to resolve conflicting lifestyles in a peaceful way. I didn't watch it when I was a teen. I remember there was an investigation about the bombing, but I don't even think I knew about this special committee. I didn't know it was on TV, and it's something my mom probably wouldn't have let me watch anyway. But I watched every bit I could get my hands on over the last few months. The commission's first meeting was on May 28th, just two weeks after the bombing of MOVE. By March of 1986, the commission presented their findings to the city. There were 38 actions in six different categories the commission recommended. 
Some of the recommendations were made about the operation of city government. Some were about the police department or the way the police and the fire departments coordinated joint efforts. Crisis response. I'm not going to read all 38 recommendations. I will post a link to them on my website after these episodes are up. But I want to share a few with you that really stood out to me. One was greater oversight of the police department. The commission recommended that the mayor and the city's managing director provide greater scrutiny over the police. They also recommended legal assistance to guide the police to have better interactions with the public. Now, of course, we know the city had to appoint a new police commissioner because, you know, Sambor resigned before the city had a chance to fire his ass. And with the new commissioner, the committee recommended bringing in outside experts to, to provide advanced training to the police. There were actually 20 recommendations for the police of Philadelphia. More than half the commission's recommendations were about the police. Protection of children was another standout, and getting the Department of Health and Human Services involved with the police when there were any situations involving children. I think that was a nice sentiment, but if you listened to my episode about Philly's unknown children, you know how well DHS does their job sometimes. The mayor approved another special committee to implement many of the recommendations made by the Special Investigative Commission. Recently, I was on the show Our Americana with Josh Hallmark. That episode will be up later this week, and I'll share the link to his show on my social media pages. Josh and I talked about Philadelphia. What else would we talk about? And he asked me what was the catalyst that changed Philadelphia? What made the city better? Because... He'd heard we'd had a bit of a scary reputation 30 or 40 years ago. At the time when Josh and I spoke, I told him I didn't think there was one particular catalyst, nor did I think Philadelphia was ever all that bad. We certainly have and had our share of challenges like any other big city. But now, after doing the work on these episodes, I feel a little differently. I think there was a catalyst for change, and it was the bombing of MOVE. That event taught the city and the police You cannot fuck up on a scale of epic proportions. You cannot ignore urban African-American neighborhoods. You cannot screw over your own people and think the community will sit idly by while you bury your heads. That special investigative commission pointing the finger at the leaders of our city on public television made a difference. Maybe not as much as we would have hoped, but it did something. After the special commission, a grand jury was convened to investigate the deaths of the 11 members of MOVE who lost their lives on May 13, 1985. Mayor Wilson Good and other city officials were investigated for criminal liability for the deaths as well as the destruction of the city. We just reported that uh, Police Commissioner Gregory Sambor said that he ordered this so-called concussion bomb to secure the building. Uh, Could you... Explain exactly what that means and what Sambor intended to do. What does that word secure mean exactly? Well, I think that you would probably have to ask him that question with a full explanation. My understanding about what he wanted to do was to remove the bunker from the top of the house. There was a tremendous amount of concern uh, that the bunker was constructed in a way that would uh, prevent the uh, officers from entering the building because it was always a possibility of someone hiding out in there and shooting. So there was an attempt all day long, first with water, uh, then uh, with other objects to try and remove the bunker. Uh, and apparently uh, the decision was made to try and, and try and explode it off in some way. And on May 3rd, 1988, 
Almost three years after the bombing of Osage Avenue, everyone was cleared by a vote of six to four. The grand jury found no evidence of criminal intent, recklessness, nor negligence under Pennsylvania law. And I find that shocking. I can understand them finding no evidence of criminal intent, but recklessness? Please! It was incredibly reckless for Sambor to authorize dropping a bomb on the roof of a property that had canisters of gasoline sitting on it. He knew the gasoline was there. Powell knew. They all knew because they'd seen photographs of 6221 Osage Avenue the day before the attack on move. That was reckless. That was negligent. The grand jury, however, did shake a very angry finger at everyone involved, especially the mayor. Yeah, I'm being sarcastic as fuck, but that's what it feels like to me. We do not exonerate the men responsible for this disaster. Rather than a vindication of these officials, this report should stand as a permanent record of their morally reprehensible behavior. They called the attack on MOVE epic governmental incompetence. You think? How is that not the same as negligence? William Brown III, who was the chairman of the Special Investigation Commission, called the deaths of the children at Osage Avenue unjustifiable homicide. He was quoted as saying, It seems to me there was more than sufficient evidence to indicate there should have been indictments returned by this grand jury. If the decision to let the fire burn is not actionable under our laws, I can't understand why. And you know what, Mr. Brown? I don't understand it either. Philadelphia District Attorney Ronald Castile was an advisor to the grand jury. His perspective on their findings was very different than William Brown. The grand jury concluded that the dropping of the bomb was a legitimate exercise of police power and that it did not in itself cause the deaths and the property damage. The pain we suffer in the death of the children and the destruction of the neighborhood would seem to lead to the conclusion that the crimes must have occurred on May 13th. But our society cannot condone prosecutions motivated solely by grief or rage. The grand jury also found that while MOVE began as a nonviolent group of activists who lived their life by their own belief system, founded on the commitment of getting back to nature, by 1985, they had transformed into what the grand jury called an extremist group well-practiced in the art of urban terrorism. Since then, the 6200 block of Osage Avenue has struggled, and that's putting it mildly, in part because of lousy redevelopment. In fact, the redevelopment was so bad that about 15 years ago, Mayor John Street offered buyouts to the residents. 36 families took the buyouts and 16 wouldn't sell. They wanted to stay in their neighborhood. If you look at the street today, you'll see 36 homes on Osage Avenue are boarded up. There's boards over the windows, boards over the front doors, and every so often the block is peppered with beautiful little front lawns with lawn ornaments and flowers and lawn chairs, and that's the 16 families that chose not to leave. It feels like nothing good could ever grow there again, except maybe that's going to change. So in April of this year, a group of sixth graders from the Jubilee School, now that's a private school in West Philadelphia, received approval for a historical marker commemorating MOVE. 
these kids studied MOVE. Talk about a proactive, real curriculum. They interviewed people connected to the bombing in 1985. They visited Osage Avenue. They wrote poems for the victims. And these kids applied for state approval for a historic marker. And their application was approved. Now they just have to raise $1,000 to pay for it because funding comes from private sponsors. Last year, the city announced it planned on working to turn around the neighborhood, make it more prosperous, put those abandoned properties to better use, and hopefully bring more families back to Osage Avenue. The problem is, those properties were never built to code. So it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of money. Ramona Africa spent seven years in jail after the bombing on Osage Avenue. She was charged with attempted murder and, wait for it, arson. Yeah. The city dropped a fucking bomb on a residential neighborhood, yet Ramona Africa was charged with arson and attempted murder. While there was gunfire coming from 6221 Osage Avenue, nobody disputes that. There was no way to know who was responsible. Certainly no evidence indicating Ramona Africa was the only one firing at police. Yet she went to jail. She had an opportunity for parole after a year and a half, if she cut ties with MOVE. And that was something she simply refused to do. So she chose to spend another seven years in jail, and she served her full sentence. Today, she is the Minister of Communication for MOVE. Ramona Africa is also now the only living survivor of the MOVE bombing. I know I told you earlier there were two survivors, Ramona and Bertie Africa. There's a photograph of Bertie just after the fire, in the back of a car. He's naked. There are burns on his arms and his face, and this picture is devastating. It's the sort of picture people win prizes over, and it just never should have happened. I'll share the photo on social media. This little boy and the other five children at MOVE should not have been fighting for their lives in a fire that reached over 2,000 degrees. 20% of his body was covered in second and third degree burns. He watched Tamasa Africa die in Bertie's mother's arms. According to both Bertie and Ramona, when they tried to flee out the basement door, police fired at them, forcing them back inside. He watched his friends burn. He watched his own skin burn in the basement of 6221 Osage Avenue. Even with guns going off in front of them, his mother, Rhonda Africa, pushed him through the back door into the alley. It was filled with smoke. He couldn't see, which meant maybe the police couldn't see him and couldn't shoot him. He fell in the alley. And when a police officer tried to help him, he was so scared he screamed, please don't shoot me. After he left MOVE, Bertie went to live with his father, who had never been a member of MOVE, and his stepmother. His name was changed to Michael Ward. He went to high school. He got good grades. He learned to live in a world that was foreign to him, but it wasn't as bad as he had been led to believe. Michael Ward served in the Army, he had two children, and he worked as a long-distance truck driver. In September 2014, Michael Ward died unexpectedly. He was found in a hot tub on a cruise ship. He was on a family vacation and had too much to drink. His death was ruled an accidental drowning due to alcohol. He had a blood point alcohol level of 0.156. The story of MOVE is polarizing. I know there are some people in and around the city of Philadelphia and probably around the country with very particular opinions about both the siege that ended in gunfire in 1978 and the bombing in 1985. 
I, too, have very particular opinions, as you heard throughout these episodes. I don't believe the city was justified to barricade a home full of men, women, and children to make them leave. And I sure as hell don't believe the city was justified in dropping a bomb in 1985. I hope that even if you come to these episodes with a different perspective than mine, you'll listen anyway. And you'll think about what the country was like in the 70s, what Philadelphia was like in the 70s. When a man named Ira Einhorn, who pretended to be the chief hippie in Philadelphia, pretended to be the greatest advocate for change in this city, had doors opened to him by some of the greatest minds in our city. Doors at universities, doors at big businesses, while the body of Holly Maddox was mummifying in his closet. Yet a man like John Africa, who wore dreadlocks, ate raw meat, and encouraged his followers to forego technology, living in a way that truly celebrated the earth, and not through a week of speeches and sit-ins, but every day of their life. A man like that and his followers were harassed and assaulted over and over. The grand jury said MOVE evolved into an extremist group. If that's true, Frank Rizzo and the city helped cast the mold that shaped MOVE's future. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and I'd also like to say thank you to some very special voices you heard in these episodes. Margot D. from Book Versus Movie Podcast, Fit Bottom Girls, Best Neighborhood, and Not Fade Away Podcasts. Jeremy H. from Most Wonderful Wonders Podcast. Jeremy C. from the Podcast We Listen To Podcast and the Facebook community of the same name. Jennifer M. over in the UK. David the Producer from the Unwritable Rant Podcast. Roseanne S. from California Dreamin' Podcast. Nick H. from the Concession Stand Podcast. Erica G. from Apex and Abyss Podcast. And last but certainly not least, Robin W. from the Trail Went Cold Podcast. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this episode and what you hear in every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website, emmysarah.com, and download her music on iTunes. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. <laughs>